Hi there, I'm Neve Shaw and this is Humans of Space, a podcast about curious people. More specifically, it's chats with people that I've met along the journey so far in getting to space. People from many parts of the world, people who've inspired me, people who do interesting things, know interesting stuff, have figured out great things, or people who want to change the world. Curious people who are happy to chat with me about their lives, their passions, and explore together what drives us to be the people we need to be. I like to think that Humans of Space is a blend of space, science, curiosity, and creativity for ears of all kinds. But I guess that's up to you to decide. might be very early here in Dublin this morning, but it's late at night in Hawaii, where I am speaking with colleague and friend, Dr. Michaela Musilova, who is director of the High Seas Analog Mars and Moon Habitat Facility on one of the islands. And I've asked her to speak to us today because Michaela really is an outstanding person in her field, who is extremely modest as well, might I add, but, but she... She's sort of leading the way in in how to be an analog astronaut, which is an analog that prepares for simulated missions. And if you want to know more, check out the Galaxy Squad videos for young families, where she very kindly recorded a video and chatted with us about her work at the High Seas facility. She's been studying for many years to specialise in the area that she wants to become a part of, which is of course astrobiology. So she has a degree in UCL, combined at Caltech, California, and she's a PhD from the University of Bristol. So good morning, Michaela. How are you? Hello, Neve or aloha here from Hawaii. I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. What time is it where you are now? It is uh, just gone 9 p.m. Uh, the day before <laughs> where you are. <laughs> so I'm kind of back in time compared to Europe. Here, we're still in full uh, lockdown in Hawaii. Uh, everyone has to work from home. And yeah, I have found that time is passing by so quickly these days. Yeah. Every day is very similar to one another. How is Hawaii doing? Is it doing okay in terms of virus numbers? Is everyone doing okay over there? Yes, actually, we're doing really well. And it is thanks to these more extreme measures uh, where, for example, compared to other states in the U.S., Hawaii has probably the lowest numbers, if not one of the top <laughs> lowest numbers in terms of people infected and people who had to be hospitalized yeah. because people are so careful. But one of the reasons why I think Hawaii is doing so well is because of this community spirit, or as they like to call it, the aloha spirit, where you're you know, not just thinking of yourself, you're thinking of the others in the community as well that could suffer if they were to get um, this disease. And thinking of each other in this way helped people just, you know, abide by the rules and stay at home and stay mm. away from others. And that's why we're doing so well, but also we're all very isolated from the rest of the world. Let's dig a little deeper about our common passion, which is, of course, space. So I met you first, Michaela, in 2015, when we both attended the Space Studies programme. And, and yet it's funny, we knew each other, but we didn't really know each other. We got to know each other a lot better when we both participated in a simulated Mars mission at the Mars Desert Research Station in Utah. And before I met you, you were much further along in your journey of what you're trying to achieve in your life. So what essentially is your goal in life? 
Well, my biggest dream is to become an astronaut and be able to do astrobiology research um, on another planet. So for those who are not familiar with the term, astrobiology is the search for life in space, but it's also studying how life developed and evolved uh, on Earth. And uh, it's a pretty vast science, as you can imagine, to try and study all those different things. So I specialize in life in extreme environments and uh, trying to see if we could find these extreme life forms uh, on other planetary bodies like Mars, for example. So my absolute dream job would be to be able to look for aliens essentially on Mars or uh, I'd say next level down would be to go help build the first settlements on the moon. And even if that wouldn't be possible, at least to go to space, <laughs> that would be, let's say, the, the lowest there. But even that's such a difficult thing to want to achieve. And it's been something I've been working towards my whole life. So two questions come out of that. So firstly, why astrobiology? Where did that come from? Uh, I think astrobiology was there actually even before I decided I wanted to be an astronaut. I think it was around when I was maybe eight years old and I first discovered what's cool about space. I think I was in a grocery store with my parents and I was bored waiting for them. And there was like a pile of books, encyclopedias, I think. And I was just kind of, you know, looking through them, looking for something interesting to read about or nice pictures. And I came across a section that talked about planets. And I was immediately, I fell in love with Jupiter and Saturn and how many moons they have and rings and all those things. And that's when I started asking myself, huh, could there be life elsewhere in space on other planets or maybe on some of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn? And that's when this kind of little bug got put into my head and I started wondering about it. And soon after that, I started writing these little sci-fi novels as a nine and 10 year old, uh, trying to imagine what aliens could look like, where they could live. And I also had a passion for fashion design. So I combined it and I started designing uh, fashionable clothing for the aliens. So kind of all spacey kind of stuff. And, and then that kind of continued, um, you know, to be something I was interested in, but I thought maybe that's more like a, you know, childhood dream sort of thing. So instead I focused on actually being able to become an astronaut and keeping maybe studying aliens as a hobby. But it wasn't really until I was 15 years old when I discovered that there is such a job to be an astrobiologist. And that was after watching the documentary movie by James Cameron called Aliens of the Deep. And in that movie, they travel in these submersibles to incredible depths and oceans, and they find all these amazing creatures, these extreme life forms or so-called extremophiles. And watching that movie made me realize that, oh, there's so much amazing stuff that we can study you know, on our planet alone, meaning that elsewhere in the universe, there must be, you know, so many other crazy creatures that exist there. And that's when I knew that this, this is the job I wanted to have. And, and I wanted to try and become an expert in astrobiology in parallel of pursuing my dream of becoming an astronaut. I really do think that, that some, so many children are inspired by different things, particularly space, but, but then there are people that make it happen. And who was there for you supporting this thirst for knowledge around space and astrobiology in those formative years, do you think? 
Well, it's it's a difficult question, actually, because there wasn't really anyone there. I don't want to be mean towards my parents. They were supportive of me as a person and of getting education. But it, I really felt like I was alone making these decisions because they were just so out there. Um, so, for instance, I remember that when I first decided I wanted to be an astronaut, and then later decided I wanted to be an astrobiologist while pursuing my astronaut dream. Um, you know, my parents were a bit worried. They were like, well, you know, we're, we're, we're scientists to some degree, but in social sciences, we're not, you know, experts in um, scientific subjects. And, you know, we can't give you support there. Uh, we can't give you financial support to go study these kinds of subjects abroad uh, because I knew I would have to go study in the UK or in the US to be able to get to astrobiology. And so already they were worried that they couldn't provide me with the support that I needed. And I knew that I would have to kind of go alone. On the other hand, what they did do is um, they always supported my passion for these different things. I remember my mom buying me um, these different types of encyclopedias or, or books about space with beautiful pictures, of stars and galaxies and so on. And so she supported me in this way. And then dad always helped me with uh, different types of homework that was uh, science related that I might have struggled with. So they supported me in the way that they could. But I knew that I had to go on this journey alone. And even in school, unfortunately, I wasn't very supported there as I'd say I was a bit of a rebel. <laughs> I didn't really fit in with my um, classmates. So I was a bit of a loner and doing my own thing. And a lot of teachers just kind of, I don't know, they gave up on me. They didn't see my potential, except for one, uh, my maths teacher in high school. And thank goodness for him, because he was really the only person who did see my potential, who kept on encouraging me, despite me you know, not always being the best student, not always doing my homework and so on. Mm. And it was his constant belief in me that you know I'm better than I show is really what motivated me to prove that to everyone else. So I definitely owe him a big debt of gratitude. Mm. You grew up in Slovakia. So it's not like these kind of universities are around the corner from you in the US or anything like that. So just give us a little bit of context about your parents and the kind of world that you grew up in, because that's extraordinary in itself that you've achieved so much in that way. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so my parents um, are both from, let's say, this humanitarian background. So my mom's an archaeologist where, of course, you combine different sciences, too. But from what I always cherished that she brought to my life was the love for history and uh, archaeology, too. She would always take me around different archaeological monuments and historical sites and explain things to me. Uh, she would encourage me to take part in different types of competitions, um, including things like basically knowledge-based competitions in Slovakia and related to UNESCO, so an international organization. And my father, he's a diplomat, though he did his PhD in psychology, but then later changed his uh, ways and thanks to him, uh, my family and I, we got to travel um, around the world because of his job. We lived um, in Washington, D.C. when I was a little girl, uh, before that even in Geneva when I was a baby. Um, and then actually uh, during my high school years, we lived in Rome. 
But as a bit of a masochist, I decided to go to a French high school so that I would learn French by attending the school, Italian by living in Rome, and I got to keep other languages while studying at school, so English, and I had German, Latin, and other things like that as well. So uh, thanks to both of my parents, I, I got exposure to a lot of uh, great, um, let's say, yeah, hum humanitarian, uh, artsy subjects, languages. Both of my parents are fluent in multiple languages. And that's kind of the direction I think they kind of saw me going to perhaps towards diplomacy or staying in the arts. Um, and that's why it was kind of all my own initiative to go a completely different way. Um, but yes, in terms of education, even in Italy or in France, where I got various scholarships after high school, I knew that I wouldn't have access to doing the kind of space-related research I dreamt of. I really knew that the best options were in the U.S., but even in the U.K., they had very good options at different universities. So at the end of um, my high school years, I researched which universities in the U.K., could provide me with the education I needed. And that's why I chose UCL, where I could combine geology and astrophysics and a planetary science degree. And then later I was hoping to add biology to that mixture to really get to my beloved mm -hmm. astrobiology, which is a multidisciplinary science where you have to be able to be good in biology and geology, astrophysics and engineering and many other subjects. And that's essentially what led me to the UK and also versus the U.S. because the U.S. was just too expensive and the U.K. was definitely more accessible at the time. Do you think that travel, like having the opportunity to see and live in different cities, do you think that's what expanded your worldview to want so much? Um, I, I definitely think traveling helped with my education. It definitely opened my eyes to a lot of um, societal issues. It, it gave me great perspectives or different points of view for different matters. And that definitely was very important in, in broadening my education. The reason why I, I decided to go my own way anyway was, was just pure stubbornness and determination, but also some kind of way of trying to prove myself to others. Mm. And I think that's years of being underestimated in different schools by a number of people, especially teachers, made me, you know, feel like rebelling in this way too, where I, I had to kind of prove to everyone. They were, they were literally like my biology teacher in high school, who was the person who should have been the most supportive of me because I wanted to go towards, um, you know, biological sciences. He was the one who doubted me the most and made me feel, you know, bad about myself. And he laughed at me wanting to do astrobiology, like I'm not joking. Um, so it, it was almost maybe <laughs> in a way to even prove to him and everyone who doubted me like that, that I, I got this, like I will do it almost as a rebellion um, that I decided to pursue these things against all odds and the main odds being financial matters as I had to raise funding for all my studies myself. And do you think that's always been your driving force, Michaela, is to prove to yourself and to others that you're more, more than who they saw when you were very young? That that's something that definitely that, that resonates with me. I was bullied when I was around 11 or 12. And I really do believe mm -hmm. that it was it. Well, it made me feel that I had more to prove in a way. I definitely think it was an important factor for me because I was also bullied. Part of it was 
um, actually not being able to speak certain languages well. So for instance, um, I did a big part of my primary school in the U.S., but that meant I, I didn't learn my own mother tongue well. So when we moved back to Slovakia when I was 11 years old, I couldn't even speak my own mother tongue properly, let alone, you know, write <laughs> grammatically well or and, you yeah. know, spell things correctly. So I was terribly bullied then. Actually, I was I was even really badly bullied when we first moved to the U.S. because I didn't speak English. <laughs> and so and we moved straight into second grade. So I was, you know, a year behind from everyone else. And, and basically every time we moved, I went through bullying. And that's why I was almost always an outcast, couldn't really get along with everyone. And, and by the time I got into high school, I didn't want to get along with anyone because I was tired of them treating me this way all the time. So I was actually happy to be a loner. Um, but yeah, all, all that definitely had an impact on me. But I think Part of it was actually very simply scientific curiosity, which I only realized mm -hmm. later. But mm -hmm. uh, when I remember um, one of the, the reasons why I uh, chose astrobiology when I was 15 and everyone, including my parents, you know, were nudging me in different directions saying, do something practical where you're going to earn money and have a, you know, stable future. <laughs> and instead I wanted to do something which, you know, was high risk essentially, especially at that time. Um, and when I think back to it, I think part of it was I was just genuinely fascinated. I really wanted to know. I wanted to know if there are aliens out there. I wanted to know what extreme life forms exist here on Earth. And I wanted to go to these extreme places, too. I've always had a big um, connection with nature. I love going into nature. And it's definitely thanks to my parents who took my brother and I, you know, camping and hiking pretty regularly. So I love being in the nature and I, I really desired having a job that would take me out into uh, nature as well. And so it was, I would think it was, it was a combination of a certain rebellion and wanting to prove myself and following my passions and, and curiosity for, you know, understanding how the world works and what else is out there. And it is interesting, you know, I do think that in our formative years, if you have a tough time, I think you can actually, it can actually make you separate from the pack. And in a way, it's the biggest gift ever because you start to see things differently and you start to kind of see the world that you want to be a part of instead of trying to belong to the same world as everybody else. And I think in a way, the struggles that we have in our younger years can sometimes put us at a huge advantage as we get older. What is it you're really trying to figure out, Michaela? I mean, I know you're interested in astrobiology, but what is the thread of curiosity for you all the time? What answers are you looking for in everything that you do, do you think? So, I mean, there's a lot there. Yeah. I, I actually, I'm really happy that I, I, I keep on being curious and I keep on wanting to know more and I, I really enjoy learning new things. And and that that's just, you know, it's just been increasing uh, over the years. But in terms of research, um, if I was to, you know, choose one thing that really interests me the most, I would say um, is life on Mars, as there is still hope that we could find life forms living there today, or at least fossils of life from about three billion years ago, when the conditions on Mars were much more, uh, let's say, amicable towards life or much nicer towards life than they are today. Um, we know almost 
pretty certainly that there used to be a lot of water present on the surface of Mars at that time. The atmosphere which was much thicker, um, various uh, nutrients and elements that life as we know it needs was present there. And so if at around a similar time life arose on Earth, why couldn't it you know, ha- come to life on Mars too? And that's why a lot of astrobiologists still believe and hope that uh, we could find some proof on Mars that life existed there if it doesn't exist there anymore. And in order to find this life, we need to understand you know, where to look for it exactly, what instruments we need to be able to detect it, and so on. And that's where the extremophiles come in. Um, and that's why I really went down this route, because studying, for instance, extremophiles that can live in extremely cold environments on Earth that can also resist high radiation doses or this kind of creatures that we could potentially find on Mars today. So understanding the limits to which they can survive cold radiation, other extreme factors on Earth will help us understand if you know, we could find something similar on Mars and then how to look for it. So that has always been one of my greatest passions is to understand this more and and find a way towards finding life on Mars. But then there's so many other aspects related to that. For instance, an experiment I did at the Mars Desert Research Station um, during my very first simulated mission to Mars, and that was using these extremophiles to fertilize uh, analog Martian soils. And to explain this a little bit, I found that some of these extremophiles uh, from Greenland, for example, that live in extremely cold conditions with almost no nutrients present uh, present there, they're still able to produce a lot of nutrients. So they're not only feeding themselves and their communities, these microbes, but everything they produce is, uh, quote unquote, exported to the surrounding rivers and oceans. So they are actually feeding entire ecosystems. And so that's when I thought, ah, could we use these extremophiles and, you know, add them to soil? And could they, you know, make a lot of nutrients in the soil? That way they're fertilizing it and we could use it to grow crops. And then I thought, oh, we could apply that to Mars and so-called, you know, it's called terraforming. So creating earth conditions on Mars. And that's where, you know, that experiment went. So these extremophiles are very multifunctional and can be applied (laughs) in different directions. And these are some of the things that I've been working with. So if you were to to get to Mars, would would it have to be a human mission in order for us to determine whether these extremophiles exist on Mars or not? Or would a rover be able to test and send back the data to your lab, say, for instance? Is it important to have people on Mars in order for you to determine that for yourself? Various studies have looked into that, um, the the pros of sending humans there versus just keep on sending ro- rovers and robots as we've been doing. And what we found is that actually it is so much more efficient to send humans somewhere and they did a comparison study of, um, you know, just looking at how many samples the Apollo astronauts collected during their very short um, stay on the moon and how much that has enriched scientific research for, for decades compared to, you know, what some rovers have um, analyzed on the surfaces of these different planetary bodies over very long periods of time. And so when you look at return on investment, it's actually 
quote unquote, better value for money to send humans to another planet because they can get so much more done in a much shorter period of time. And even though it's going to cost so much more to do that, it still comes back as a better investment than just keep on sending rovers. And one of the reasons for that is is the, the efficiency. Humans can walk much faster and cover more ground than rovers. Humans can make decisions on the spot. If you send an astrobiologist, a geologist, and other experts to Mars, they can make decisions on the spot and decide which samples to use, how to use them, where to dig, and so on. And they don't have to you know, go via mission control on Earth every time with a 20-minute delay in each direction and so on. They can make those decisions there and then, collect the samples, do the analyses. Of course, people on Earth can help them, but it, it takes, you know, minutes to days. Mm-hmm. But if you have a rover, for that rover to even cover a certain, uh, you know, stretch of ground takes many days or weeks sometimes. And then they're remotely controlled from Earth, so there are time delays. Um, Then people on Earth have to make a decision on whether the rover is going to collect a sample, analyze it, or let it be, move on to somewhere else. And all that decision-making in a group with the time delay of sending messages to Mars can take days to weeks to just collect one sample and do one analysis. So it's so much slower. And... Even though it's more expensive to send humans over time, it will actually um, make much bigger discoveries for science to do that than just to keep sending rovers. So let's say we get you to Mars and you're collecting your samples and you do determine that these extremophiles exist on Mars. What is the significance of a discovery like that? Wow, that would it would literally be mind blowing for probably most people because so so far you know, we've been studying life based on what we have available. And actually, extremophiles have been some of the most interesting life forms we ever come across and have opened our eyes to what extremes, you know, life can endure, where we can find it. Essentially, everywhere we've looked on Earth, the bottoms of oceans, up in the clouds, in crazy toxic environments, we always found life there. It's very (laughs) prolific. But it always, you know, similar. It's all carbon-based, uh, all, you know, is dependent on water and, and a number of other criteria. And finding something else on another planet would really open our eyes to what life could be like elsewhere in the universe. For instance, if it was to be exactly the same as life on Earth, carbon-based, dependent on water and so on, we would know that that's the most likely kind of life that can arise elsewhere. So if Unless a planet has these exact conditions that this type of life needs, life isn't going to exist, most likely. Of course, it's mm. just a theory. However, if we suddenly find a completely different type of life, you know, for example, silicon-based or whatever, something completely different, then suddenly we're going to realize, wow, there's, you know, the possibilities are, are endless. You know, life could be completely different. It'll help us look for life in different ways because currently we're looking for life in space on a kind of preliminary basis. So we're basically looking for something similar to us. And if we don't find it, then we might try and find something that we don't even know how to look for, basically. Yeah. So uh, finding something, whatever it will be, will greatly expand our knowledge about uh, life in the universe, um, how it arose. Like if it's relatively easy for life to just appear on different planets in just one um, planetary system, like the solar system, 
then again, the odds for more life being present in the universe are huge. If we don't find life on Mars, then again, it makes us think maybe, maybe we're pretty unique here on Earth. So they're big questions, big questions about our existence and about how to roadmap the rest of the universe. We can make extrapolations if there are similar streamophiles on Mars. It kind of suggests that there is more life out there that is carbon based. Exactly. Is that a fair thing to say? And yeah. then not to mention yeah. the kind of philosophical and religious and other implications, you know, that will be probably very mind blowing for, for most of the world from that perspective. Yeah, because it would make us realize that there is potentially other life out there and we just need to get busy and figuring out how we're going to get there. So within all that, Michaela, you've really become quite an expert in, in simulated missions. We did our Mars Desert Research Station mission together. We had 15 wonderful saws together in the middle of the Utah desert. But you've now gone on and to become director of, of High Seas, mm -hmm. which is a facility in Hawaii that also runs simulated missions. Why are simulated missions important for people to participate in who are trying to find these answers to these bigger questions to our existence and to our understanding of the universe? Where do analog missions fit within all of that? Analog missions are extremely important because they help us test everything uh, on Earth first. To explain this a little bit, every mission to space costs a lot of money. There's a huge risk in whether systems are going to work, whether the astronauts are going to survive just the launch into space and then all the spacewalks and research that they do and so on. And it just, we cannot risk sending humans to space or even, you know, further over to Mars and start building a colony there without being more than 100% sure if that's at all possible, that it's going to work. Of course, you're never going to know to 100%, but you should try your best to reach that. So you're going to want to test everything many times on Earth. And, you know, you can test the launches of rockets, as we've seen, you know, for example, SpaceX was doing pretty and has been doing pretty successfully. You can test spacesuits and things like that. But the only way to really test humans, how are humans going to behave when they're going to be, you know, isolated for long periods of time in a small group, four to six people on a potentially two or three year mission to Mars and back, the only way to to really prepare for that is to literally, quote unquote, lock them up somewhere in yeah. a simulated space environment and test that as many times as possible. Because unlike uh, instruments and spacesuits, you know, you, you build those things, you know what they're made of. And therefore, if they work once or twice, they should probably work, you know, correctly the rest of the time. But humans aren't like that. Every one of us is different, reacts differently under stress and different conditions. So it takes a lot of testing to find the right kinds of people that are going to be able to work together during such difficult space missions, who are going to be able to do the research that we need them to do, and so on. So that's one of the main reasons why analog missions are so important. Mm. Um, but the other big bonus is that they provide a platform to test uh, research experiments and technologies also necessary for um, space uh, exploration. So you can test rovers in these analog lunar and Martian terrains. You can 
test different technologies that you're going to want to use on Mars and the moon one day, but you can test them here on Earth and make sure that they work first before you send them to space. So it's both about testing humans and all the technologies and, and scientific research that we will need for space exploration. And what I noticed from our mission as well is that looking onwards at yourself and then Roy, who's a geologist, and also Rick, who is an astrobiologist, that it seemed to be important for you to have an opportunity to to work in the field and test and sample. Was that important? Yes, it's very important because, <laughs> for example, as a geologist, and, and I've done uh, a lot of geology research myself, you, you know, you're used to certain conditions. For instance, you're going to go camp somewhere, you're going to have all your geology gear with you, and then, you, you know, you plan your day to collect the samples. It might be in an extremely hot desert, it might be in the Arctic, and you have to have your cold gear and everything. But, you know, you, you have some restrictions, but you're fairly free to operate yeah. in the way you want, or the way you need. But yeah. on a simulated mission or, you know, and one day on a real mission on, say, Mars, you're going to be wearing a spacesuit. <laughs> and you yeah. can only go outside for X amount of time while your spacesuit is providing you with air to breathe and, uh, you know, electricity and all those other tools you might need to do your research. And you can only go during times when it's safe for you, when you have permission for mission control and so on. So all these restrictions are going to impact the work you do and that you can do uh, while exploring another planetary body. And again, you don't realize this until you do it yourself. And so I think, uh, you know, like you mentioned, Roy and Rick and I, who actually yeah. had to collect samples and do work in the field, it was really difficult. The spacesuit is big. It uh, obstructs your vision to some degree. Things get in the way. You can't breathe properly sometimes. Sometimes the weight of the backpack with your air supplies mm, pushes yeah. towards the ground. It makes you lose stability. And now try and collect a very small biological samples for your astrobiology research. Even even you, you were taking pictures and you found it difficult. Yeah, very, difficult very difficult, yeah. Everything is difficult. Everything gets exactly. difficult, yeah. yeah. So you don't Everything realize does. just how challenging this is until you do it. And that's why we do it. And that's why we do it a lot to perfect it, to find, you know, different instruments to use, different methods to make sure it works despite all these obstacles and things like that. It's been a very strange year for us so far with the pandemic and everybody having to lock down in different degrees of that, depending on what country and, and where they're living in. So what's different about an analog mission in terms of being isolated? Because you were saying it kind of tests your own metal as a crew. What's different about an analog mission to what people have been experiencing of late in lockdown? So there's definitely, there are a lot of similarities and the isolation mm. we're, we're all going through around the world is, is definitely one of the main things that I guess allow people to know a little bit what it's like. I would say that the some of the main differences are that during an analog mission, you cannot exit the habitat without a spacesuit. So you wouldn't be able to leave your house now without wearing something like a spacesuit, without having the permission of mission control on Earth. Uh, you would only be able to exit your, your habitat, your house, you know, maybe even once a week sometimes, depending on the mission. So you have many more restrictions. If you're doing a simulated mission to Mars, there is a 20 minute time delay each way. So even in the case of an emergency, something bad happens, it would still take at least 40 minutes 
for you to get help from Earth. The time the message would travel to Earth, they would brainstorm about what to say to you and then send the message back. So these are definitely things that make it so much worse to do an analog mission compared to, let's just say, being at home during the lockdown. However, let's say one, uh, let's say, advantage that the missions have compared to what we're going through is that normally you know the end date. You know that you're on this mission for X amount of weeks or months, even you know several years, but you know that there's an end, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, something you can look forward to and work towards. However, the situation we're finding ourselves in these days is very different because in some countries, like in the US, we don't know when it's going to end. It doesn't mm. seem to be getting better. We have no idea where and when we're going to find this light at the end of the tunnel. And that causes so much more psychological stress um, for us humans. And that actually makes this uh, more challenging than one of those missions that I've been on. Yeah. And then, um, you know, the whole notion of colonizing Mars or what do you think of that? And what kind of timeline do you think it would be before we would have human missions to Mars? In terms of, you know, humanity's future, we should definitely aim to build permanent settlements on Mars. I'd rather not use the word colonization because especially in this yeah, no. age, it's not exactly yeah. a positive term. Um, and, and people ask me why, what, what's, what's the point of, of doing this? And, and to recap this in a nutshell, I, I answer with three kind of different types of answers. So to start with a more kind of pessimistic one, I think of all the asteroids and other uh, space hazards, if you will, that are out there and how we're all just on this one fairly fragile planet. And if anything bad were to happen, for instance, you know, an asteroid would impact Earth, we currently have no backup plan. All our eggs are in this one basket. And as a you know, humanity, we should really look for other options and prepare ourselves for the worst case scenario, which let's keep our fingers crossed is never going <laughs> to come to be, mm. but you never know. Yeah. So that's one thing. Um, and then let's say, let's go to the other end of the spectrum, something more poetic and optimistic is um, what I had mentioned before is curiosity. I believe it's one of the things that separates us even from, from animals is that we ask why and where and how yeah. we want to know. And it's this, curiosity, this passion that has led us, I think, you know, to become as developed as we are as, as creatures, developing all these technologies, but most importantly, traveling, exploring, you know, before it was the sailors who would travel across the oceans uh, to explore new lands. And now uh, space has become our new frontier, new things to explore. And, and it's very importantly, something that unites us all. We're all curious. We all want to know more. And that's why going to Mars together is something that actually could unite us as a humanity and for us to stop fighting and borders and all those mm. things. And finally, the, the third thing I like to say is people tend to forget how much uh, space sector can contribute to everyday life, how so many great inventions and devices were originally uh, made to help astronauts survive in space and now are used in hospitals uh, Fire departments, you know, most of the satellites up in space are looking down on Earth, helping us live here better, not necessarily exploring what else is out there. So and in this way, 
to be able to get to Mars, we're going to have to develop all these incredible technologies, which we're going to then use on Earth to make our life better mm. here. So mm. it's definitely in our interest for these reasons for us to try and go to Mars. But at the same time, it's important to really work on that together and create a sustainable base on Mars or bases that are not going to go in the spirit of what you know, we have been going through on Earth where we're destroying the environment we live in and we're being careless. Instead, yeah. we should really make sure we start there with a clean slate, make it be as sustainable as possible, and then, you know, help at the same time make our current planet better. And any idea of when you think we will have a human mission to Mars? That's a very difficult one because, unfortunately, yeah. space exploration has been extremely tied to politics and money. And uh, as you may notice, essentially every time there's a new administration in the U.S., uh, they tend to give NASA different plans. And that's one of the reasons why we still haven't gotten to Mars yet, because things keep on changing and you need a long-term plan to get to Mars. We're talking decades of planning. And at this point in time, we're, we're not there. No space agency that I'm aware of has a really specific plan they're planning to stick to. My hope is that now with more companies being involved in the space sector, it will help accelerate this. Maybe even competition will help us get to Mars. But we're still looking at 15 plus years really to yeah. have a, a safe, sustainable base on Mars. So we're almost upon time, Michaela. Two kind of questions for you. First, what's next for you then? What's the foreseeable future for you in Hawaii right now? So we've had to uh, postpone the different missions we had planned for this year, or at least several of them, due to the current situation. So we're trying to find a solution where we can still have people come to Hawaii to do their simulated missions to the moon and Mars, but under safe mm -hmm. conditions where you know we're minimizing the risk to them and everyone else involved. And so that's one of the big things that yeah. I've been working on is trying to make this happen hopefully later this year. And if things get better next year, uh, we're hoping to continue with all the missions that we had originally planned for this year, which many of them were uh, moon missions and even some of them related to a NASA's planned mission to, missions to go to the moon in, in the next few years. And in terms of long-term goals, I'm still working towards my big dream of becoming an astronaut and not going to give Good. up on that. <laughs> I think my my mantra or my motto in life is, you know, just try your best. Do what you can so that when you look back later, you will know that you tried everything even if you didn't succeed. Yeah, I think that's it. No regrets. And so um, our common ground is in our early story was that we were both bullied and it kind of definitely became the fuel, uh, definitely for me in part anyway, and and for you. Uh, for being the outsider too, it might have helped you see things differently. So for people who are where that resonates for them or younger people who might be listening that feel different, that feel like an outsider or might be unfortunately experiencing bullying in the same way we did, what advice would you give to them? I would say really don't let anyone else um, dissuade you from what you want to do. If you have a dream, if you have a goal, just just keep up with it. Just really make that be your driving force in life to get through all the obstacles and, you know, maybe make it be a satisfaction for you 
to achieve those things and prove them wrong like um, you know Neve and I did um, but most importantly just don't let them put you off don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it just just go for it and you'll see it's so rewarding um, even to get a tiny bit closer to that big dream of yours thanks Michaela and where can people find out more about high seas um, so high seas has their own website though we are currently remaking it so we'll look much more nicer and modern soon enough but you can definitely find information there. High Seas also has a Facebook and a Twitter account. Brilliant. And then I have an official Facebook page, Twitter mm-hmm. and Instagram account where I post regular updates about the different missions we do. I will also be posting calls for people if they want to get engaged in the mission, either by sending us an experiment, a technology or being a crew member themselves. Brilliant. I'd love to. And if we ever get to go on a mission again, I'll definitely keep an eye out for that one. Thanks a million, Michaela. I guess it's time for bed for you. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much. Um, Always a pleasure, Michaela. Thank you very much. Michaela Musilova. Take care. Bye. Take care, everyone. Aloha. If you like this podcast or if you like what I do or if you'd like to know more or have a question, you can sign up for updates on my website, neveshaw.ie. This podcast is funded by my loyal Patreon subscribers, the subscription content service that allows me to create and share exclusive videos, advanced episodes of this podcast, provide special deals and discounted offers for patrons of my work. And thanks to those patrons, I get to make the work I want to make and can continue in my mission to get to space in earnest. And in return, I get to include them all in the adventures every step of the way. I couldn't do any of it without their support and I will be forever grateful to them. So thanks. And maybe you'd like to become a patron too. So if you would like to support my mission to get to space as storyteller, further details of Patreon's membership benefits and about this podcast, upcoming events and activities, they're all available from my website, neveshaw.ie account. I'd love to hear from you. But we can connect in other ways too. If you're on Twitter, my handle is Dior underscore Neve underscore Shaw. If you're on Instagram, it's Dior underscore Neve underscore Shaw. Or on Facebook, follow my page, Get Neve to Space. If you just want to watch more content, you can check out my videos on my YouTube channel, Neve Shaw. Humans of Space is produced by Mark Gardner and Catherine Cunning at Oxford Sound Studio, Oxford in the UK, with music by Tom Beasley.